In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear saints of God, because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. You recognize those words? That was the daily affirmation of Saturday Night Live's fictional character, Stuart Smalley. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. This is what he did every morning when he woke up. He looked in the mirror, and he said those words to himself again, and again, and again. And it was intended to be this comical sketch, obviously, uh, a caricature, an over-exaggeration of this soft-spoken, hair-slicked, pastel-sweater-wearing motivational speaker. And yet, what was intended to be comical, I think sort of ended up being even more prophetic. This seems to be a very fitting commentary on our culture today, I think. You're good enough has become the motto of a generation that has won participation championships and has created this thing called quiet quitting in the workplace. You're smart enough. This is something that kind of came out of COVID, but sadly, I think it's here to stick around. Did you know that, that there's a large number of colleges and universities that are no longer requiring to see any sort of SAT or ACT test scores as part of your admission? It just doesn't matter anymore. You're smart enough. Now, I'm not saying that any of those things that I just referenced are bad things, necessarily. In fact, I understand the intent behind all of them. The intent behind them is to build self-esteem and to aid in mental health, which is something our culture and our society is in a great need of help with. But the question I have is, are all of those things that we're doing, are they actually providing the results we were hoping for. You're good enough. You're smart enough. Just the way you are. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to prove anything. Is that, telling people that, trying to convince people of that every single day, is that enough to actually get someone to believe it? Is it enough to silence my inner critic and these feelings of inadequacy? Because this is still the question that more than any other plagues us as human beings. Am I good enough? This was the question that also perplexed the man that we met in our gospel reading in Luke chapter 18. This is such an important account in Scripture. In fact, it's one of those rare stories 
that the Holy Spirit viewed as being so vital to understanding the totality of Scripture that he inspired three gospel writers to include it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you look at all of the things we learn about this man in each of those accounts and you line them all up, we learn that this man was young, therefore relatively healthy. This man was extremely wealthy. And he was some sort of government official, which meant that he also had a good deal of power. And when you are young and rich and powerful and successful, well, even in our day and age, we would say, you made it. But this guy still struggled. He still couldn't shake this question. And so he asks Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Have I done enough to make it when I die? Jesus, am I good enough, not just in general, but am I good enough for God? And Jesus starts to answer his question by asking a question of his own. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And do you see the answer that Jesus is giving him? You want to know whether or not you've been good enough. And yet I'm telling you that no one is good except God alone. God is the measuring stick for goodness. But Jesus plays along. You want to inherit? You want to earn eternal life? Well, then where do you go to? Where do you find God's list of the requirements that he gives that you and I have to do in order to be considered good? Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. How well have you kept God's commands? How good are you in respect to these? All of these, actually, I've kept since I was a little boy, he said to Jesus. And maybe our reaction to his answer is one where we kind of roll our eyes and go, yeah, right, buddy. Either you don't know them very well or you're not very honest with yourself. Perhaps we assume that he's sort of displaying the same kind of self-righteousness that so many people displayed before Jesus, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these religious leaders who had no need for Jesus because they had lived holy lives in their minds, because they had kept God's commandments even beyond the commandment. They had invented new commandments because what God gave them wasn't hard enough. But, but this is where the, the context of the other accounts of this story, I think, help us out a little bit. For example, in the Gospel of Mark, we are told that this man, this rich young man, didn't just stumble across Jesus one day. No, Mark tells us, as Jesus started on his way, 
a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Think about how different that is to a number of the ways that we see those self-righteous people approach Jesus. An expert in the law came to test Jesus one day. Or the Pharisees looked for an opportunity to trap Jesus. Or this guy came to Jesus because he was trying to justify himself before the world. This guy comes to Jesus in the right way, with the right question, to the right person. And we see in the way, and we see this in the way that Jesus responds to him. He tells us, I've kept all of these commandments since I was a kid. And though you and I might want to roll our eyes at him, here is how Mark tells us Jesus responds to him when he says that. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Not that Jesus didn't love the self-righteous Pharisees, but we don't hear this kind of response to them when they try and show their self-righteousness. No, this is the kind of look that Jesus gave to the woman who poured the perfume on Jesus' feet and then dried those feet with her hair. This is the look that Jesus gave to the dying thief on the cross just before Jesus promised him life everlasting. This is the look that Jesus gave to each one of those kids as their parents brought them to Jesus and he looked at them and loved them and put his hands on them and blessed them. Jesus is what love looks like. And when love encounters a man who is blind to his need for that love, then this is what love sounds like. One thing you lack. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad. And why? Do you ever notice as you read through the life and ministry of Jesus that there is largely only one of two reactions that you can have to Jesus? And I think this is largely true still today as well. You either watch Jesus as he preaches and he teaches, as he performs some sort of miracle, and people marvel at it. And they are willing to follow him the entire day or longer if needed. At the same time, there are others who watch and listen to the same account or miracle or sermon and they are utterly disgusted at Jesus. They despise him for it. 
Some wanted to put Jesus on a throne and make him their king. Other people just wanted to put Jesus on a cross and kill him for it. You either had great joy in the presence of Jesus or you were filled with utter contempt and anger. Which makes this guy really, really unique. Because as far as I can tell, his reaction was neither one of those and he is the only example in the life and ministry of Jesus of someone who came to him seeking his help and yet left not joyful or angry, but sad. And why? Because he had great wealth. Did you catch the seeming irony that Jesus uses here? The guy asked Jesus, what do I have to do? What is left off of my to-do checklist in order to get into heaven? And Jesus says, you're missing one thing. And the one thing you're missing is, you got too much stuff. Of course, it wasn't the man's stuff that was the problem. It was how he viewed his stuff. Think about it. He comes to Jesus in desperation, wanting to know what he had to do in order to be saved, and Jesus actually gives him the answer. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the man can't do it. I mean, what was he without all of his stuff? What was he without the security of his wealth? What was he without the power of his position? What was he without the honor and respect of his success? What was he without the comfort of all of his possessions? In his mind, he was no one without those things. They were his identity. They were all of the things that made him who he was in the world. And so they were his world. And he loved his world. The only problem was, as we heard the Apostle John write earlier, you cannot love both the world and God. And so the man went home sad because he loved his wealth. He wanted heaven. He wanted to be saved. But he did not want heaven. He did not want to be saved enough that he was willing to risk everything on Jesus. You see, he was so confident that he had kept commandments 4 through 10. Yet the reality was, he hadn't even kept number one. You shall have no other gods. What about you? Are you good enough? Well, what does your stuff tell you? 
it can really only say one of two things, either yes or no. If your stuff tells you that yes, you are good enough, then you either become the rich guy that Jesus described in the story where he has that bumper crop and he says, I have so much stuff that i got to tear down my old, small, dilapidated barns and build bigger ones and then I can just kick back and do nothing and enjoy life for the next 20, 30, 40 years. The only problem was he died that night. Or, I suppose you could be the prodigal son who gets that large inheritance from his father and says, you know what, I'm not wasting another moment without living the high life. And he goes off and he squanders that wealth in wild living only to be left broke, destitute, and starving. If your stuff is your identity, then you'll either refuse to part with a single penny of it fearing that to lose it is to lose your very identity, or you'll spend and live life like there's no tomorrow, because what good is wealth and prosperity if it doesn't give you the lavish life you had always dreamed of? Or, your stuff will tell you that you have not made it. That you're not good enough. At least not yet. At least not as good as the guy next to you. At least not as successful as that family. And so you think, well, I just need to work a little harder. Add another side hustle. See your family even less. Invest a little more. All in the hopes of silencing the inner screams of inadequacy by sacrificing your life on the altar of the Joneses. Friends, the Lord has so richly blessed you. He's blessed you with a job, a career that gives you a sense of satisfaction and opportunities for success as you love and serve your neighbor. He's given you a family, a spouse, children, grandchildren, parents, siblings. He's surrounded you with people to give you comfort and make you laugh friends to have fun with, a personality and reputation that actually makes you a joy to be around. He gives you hobbies that bring you joy, skills that make you feel accomplished, a house that protects you, a car that you get around in, retirement to either enjoy or look forward to, vacations to plan, food to consume, clothes to wear, and about 10,000 other things that we could go on the rest of the morning listing. How rich you are. And yet, if those are the things that you are convinced determine your value and wealth, you'll never be good enough regardless of what they tell you. Either they will flat out tell you you're not good enough, which will turn you into a slave to a master that is never satisfied and cares nothing for you, or worse, your stuff will tell you that you are good enough, that you have made it, and then Jesus will tell you this. 
how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You see, we view wealth and success and power as signs that we've made it in this life. That we're good enough. The people in the ancient world in Jesus' day actually viewed wealth and success and power as signs that God favored you. Which explains the shock of the disciples' response when they said to Jesus, who then can be saved? Jesus, if rich people who clearly have been favored more by God than anyone else cannot get to heaven, then what does that mean for the rest of us? What is impossible with men is possible with God. You see, when your goodness, your righteousness, your enoughness doesn't depend on you or on your stuff, when it depends on God alone, then the impossible not only becomes possible, it becomes God's promise to you. An imaginary story was once told, some of you maybe have heard this, about a senior angel and a junior angel in training. And the senior angel was taking this junior angel all throughout the vastness of all the galaxies of God's creation. Taking him from one end to the next and just allowing him to marvel at the power and the majesty of their creator. And as the angels got to our galaxy... And as they got closer to that giant star that you and I call the sun, the senior angel pointed and said, and I want you to keep a particularly close eye on that one right there. And the junior angel looked at it and he said, that little thing? It looks so small and so dusty and so insignificant in the vastness of all else there is, why in all the world would you point out that little ball? And the senior angel said, well, that is the infamous visited planet. And the junior angel said, do you mean that That is the one our great and glorious prince went down to and visited in person, in the flesh? That is the place, that little fifth-rate ball? Why would he do such a thing? The junior angel just sort of scrunched up his face in disgust. He says, do you mean to tell me that he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping crawling creatures on that floating ball? And the senior angel said, I do. And I don't think he would like you calling them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. 
For strange as it may seem to you and to me, he deeply loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to be his very own people. You see, God sent his son to do the impossible for you. Jesus gave up everything. The riches of glory, his power and authority as God, the praise of angels for the mocking and ridicule of those he came to save. He willingly gave up his home in heaven to be born among animals in a barn. He gave up the peace that goes beyond understanding to suffer pain that goes beyond our comprehension. He gave up the comfort of being loved by his Father in order to be forsaken by his Father. He exchanged the love of his Father for the hatred of the world. He gave up his very life, his final breath. He gave up everything to declare you his prized possession. To show you the value at which he priced you. To accomplish your forgiveness. For wanting to find your value and your worth in stuff that is not the almighty God. God, am I good enough? Am I smart enough? If you look to find the answer in God's law, in his commandments, then the answer you will get is no. You are not good enough. You are not smart enough. It doesn't matter if people like you. Doggone it, none of it is enough. Because no one is good except God alone. But if you ask that very same question in view of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the answer is so diametrically different. I am good enough. I am smart enough. Because doggone it, Jesus loves me. And he declares me to be all of them. This is impossible on our own, but thankfully we have a God who specializes in doing exactly that. Your salvation, friends, does not depend on you having a perfect love for God. With you, with me, that's impossible. Instead, our salvation depends on God displaying his perfect love for us in Christ. And that, friends, is not only possible, that's God, God's promise. And so we sing, what is the world to me? With all its vaunted pleasure, when you and you alone, Lord Jesus, are my treasure. So take this daily affirmation with you today, friends. Not the daily affirmation of Stuart Smalley, but the daily affirmation of the gospel. That God has declared me to be good. 
more than good enough, more than smart enough, because Jesus loves me. Thank you, Lord, for doing the impossible, for entering into our impossible situation, for loving us with a perfect love. Fill us with that love that you might always be our heart's greatest desire. God grant it. Amen.